Blog Talk Radio. If you are caring for a person with autism, great information from a trusted source can be a lifeline. Welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio. We are here to have the conversations that will help you create success for the extraordinary individual with autism in your life. Now, here is your host, Rob Haupt. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Autism Spectrum Radio. I say back because I was off last week. Uh, I I really appreciate uh, my good friend Gina Chang stepping in. And I got to admit, I I felt a little jealous that um, the week she was hosting, we had a bunch of giveaways, and so many of you were posting awesome things on Facebook. I was like, that's, that's my show. I, I wish I had got to do all that. But, um, but I know she was awesome, and I just I loved everything she was able to do and the great conversations that, that, that they were having. Um, for those of you uh, who, who are new to the show, uh, I, I'm Rob Haupt. I am uh, the Vice President of Business Development here at uh, Autism Spectrum Therapies, an agency that provides services to kids on the spectrum and, and with other developmental disabilities uh, across the country. We provide ABA therapy. We provide OT, speech, social skills, uh, do a lot of uh, insurance work uh, with all these new mandates. And I myself am uh, a BCBA, a board-certified behavior analyst with Unbelievably so, uh, a little over 12 years experience now, and um, actually uh, officially celebrating my, my ninth year here in California, which is a little surreal. Um, really excited about today's show, and you know, in the in the two weeks since I've I've been on the air with you guys, I've, I've kind of experienced a few a couple of different things, and and I actually have two little stories I want to share. The the first is is more of a personal one that was really cool. My, um, I, I talked to my dad last week and he was, uh, and we were doing our weekly check-in. How's it going? How are things? And he says to me, he's like, you know, I, uh, I, I listened to your show. I went and downloaded your old show. I'm like, Oh really? Which one did you hear? And of course he listened to Rodney Pete cause you know, the football quarterback is on my show. That's, that's what my dad's into. And so we went to the show and, and when Rodney was on a few weeks back in, uh, in April, and um, and my dad's just like I, I really I really appreciate the show and, and Rodney's perspective. He's like I really appreciate what you said about me. And we kind of had that like awkward father son. We're not really going to talk about our feelings or anything, and just that cool. So <laughs> kind of a funny story, but it was it was really nice that um, it was really just nice to know you know my dad who didn't know the first thing about autism, know nothing about this until I started this this career, um, and, and he's still kind of a, a novice in it all. It, it's nice to know that, you know, he's listening and learning, and um, he's actually got a few friends who are pretty actively involved with um, some, some charity work in, uh, in Westchester County uh, where he does some business. So it's, it's been a great experience. Um, so that's my personal little story. But uh, I actually went to this really cool event on Friday. Uh, you guys have, have been hearing us talk a lot. You know, Rodney talked a little bit about it. A couple weeks ago, we had Ahmed Islam on the show talking about underserved communities. And uh, there were, was this really cool press conference that I got to uh, participate and be invited to here in L.A. on Friday. And 
Um, there's this uh, grant that just got accepted at UCLA where they're going to be looking at the genetic database and really looking at ge the genetics of individuals on the spectrum in underserved communities and minority communities. And this is really important because it's going to really give us a better sense as to how we can have better early detection. Um, it is not inconceivable that 10 years from now we could potentially have a blood test where someone could be tested and be identified as at risk for autism. That's what these geneticists really are believing. And if you think about this differences, these disparities about um, the average child in a, in a community being diagnosed at the age of two um, versus another community potentially being diagnosed at four or five, you know, these are the types of things that can really, um, I think, go across borders, go across communities, and, and really lead to better and earlier detection of autism. So it's really exciting. But what was kind of most, I think, moving and uh, also uncomfortable was the, the, the comments. And this mom immediately stood up and said, this is all great, but what about my son? What about my child who can't get a diagnosis, who can't get treatment, who can't get approvals, who can't get funded, and I've called every single one of you for help and I haven't gotten it. And I was sitting there in the audience and I felt uncomfortable. I think everyone was uncomfortable, um, but it was real. That was the reality of the situation. And what was actually amazing, as, as sad as it was, as painful as it was to, to know that we as a community had let this mom down, is how many people ran to her side, came to her and said, give me all of your information. I want to make calls for you. I want to help you. And I, I just really commend this mom who had the courage to stand up in front of a room of 200 people and, and say this and speak up. And she spoke up to, you know, local assembly person, uh, heads of foundations. I mean, there were some, some important people in this room. And it was just amazing. It was really amazing. And it was then amazing to see the community, people come together. And uh, one of my friends actually... Um, was by her side. Uh, she's an advocate um, and was able to get a lot of information. And I, I know that actually a number of calls have already been made and they're already making some headway. Um, and so it was, it was the good and bad of what, of what we live with every day, but it was a really good reminder of, of what's real, what's really happening, what do we really need to look at? Um, because this, this is not an isolated incident. You know, I know in every community out there, there's, there's folks like this mom who are struggling, who are, who are hurting and not able to get the help that they need. Um, and I, it's not a California thing. It's not an L.A. thing. I think it's a, a United States of America thing is just not enough good resources out there and maybe not enough education, too. Not even maybe. I know not enough good education out there, too. So it's just a good take-home, a, a really good take-home for me um, and... Um, just something that really has been sticking with me for the last few days. Um, but let's talk about today's show. Today's show, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about. We're, we're, we're going into the social realm. Uh, we're, we're really going to talk about social skills. And I think today's show is really going to have an emphasis on a, a part of the social realm that I know we all struggle with, which is also 
taking this, these skills and applying them to the world around us, right? again, to what's real, peers, the community, all of those things that truly show our success. Uh, so today, I am uh, joined by Dr. Ann Densmore. Um, she is a certified speech pathologist and audiologist, as well as an author of Helping Children with Autism Become More Social, 76 Ways to Use Narrative Play, as well as the author of Your Successful Preschooler, 10 Skills Children Need to Become Confident and Socially Engaged. She's also the director of Child Talk in Lexington, Massachusetts. Uh, Anne is, has been a speech and language consultant at public and private schools for over 30 years, and in addition to running a private practice in Lexington, Mass., uh, where she cons and also consults internationally and has taught seminars for professionals and students at Harvard Medical School. Anne holds a Master's of Education in Human Development and Psychology from Harvard Graduate School of Education, as well as a Doctorate in Education with Specialization in Child Discourse from Clark University. She is board certified in Speech and Language Pathology, as well as Audiology. Anne, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. <laughs> that sounds important here. <laughs> I think the most, the most important thing to say is that despite all those degrees and all those years of, of working and getting these tickets to become certified, I really have learned the most from working with the children. Yeah. And that's where my real education has come from. And all my colleagues, teachers, parents, specialists all over the country, I have learned so much from them. And these two books are really uh, sort of a part of a collaboration with all of the people that I've worked with all these years. And they've given me so many ideas. And um, I just, my idea was to just try to get this out to parents because mm -hmm. play therapy is not rocket science. And parents can learn how to connect with children on the spectrum and with language delay. And mm -hmm. If just given a little help, they can do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I love that it's been uh, what you're saying about this uh, collaboration of experiences because I, I feel the same way. It feels like, you know, you, you read something, you learn something in a textbook, but to then go out there and do it and then do it with a bunch of other people with a bunch of other beliefs really tests what you really know and what really works. Yeah, and I know, Rob, you're on uh, BCBA, and that's, I've worked with many people with that background. And mm -hmm. some of these children, they're such individuals. Some of them, you know, need the highly structured therapy. Yeah. And the narrative play therapy doesn't necessarily work for every child. Sure. Just, and sometimes some kids need both. They need the high yeah. structure of ABA, and then they also need some play therapy, floor time, narrative play st type stuff on right. the side. So it's, you really have to be open-minded. You can't be stuck on one particular therapy for a particular child. Yeah. You, know, you really well, have to look at everything. Well, I think, I think what we've learned in, in one of the dialogues that, you know, our listeners are really familiar with is that, you know, there's that saying that people are really, are, are really quoting a lot, which I really like. It's, you know, if you've met one child with autism, you've met one child with autism. <laughs> we really need to look at the individual and figure out yeah. – you know, it, it, it boggles my mind sometimes where we say, you know, we, we go into schools and we go and talk about our, our typically developing children and we say, well, we really need to see what fits this child and learn who this child is, but we wouldn't do that for a child with developmental disabilities. And so I, I think 
you know, our listeners and, and what I'm actually really excited about is understanding what's, what's the spectrum of what's out there so you can figure out that perfect fit for your child. And as much so for you, because I know uh, a part, as you said, you know, it may be that a parent feels more comfortable with the certain set of strategies. And exactly. I, I'm a big believer of if you feel more comfortable, you will be better. Well, also, you know, Rob, teachers, too, because I work with teachers. Great point. And they have teaching styles. You know, when I walk in a classroom, I have to do a, a dance. I have to be careful to respect the fact that the teacher owns the classroom and guides the class and sets up the structure. And some teachers yep. may want you to work with their child or a group of a social skills group only mm-hmm. during choice time and not <laughs> at right. time. Some, some teachers may feel like, oh, I don't know what, how to do this. Will you teach me? Can I meet with you alone? I don't know how to sit on the floor and play with this kid. What do I do? And then that's where you, I come in and I do individual work. But everything is different, and the teachers have a struggle too. The parents yeah. struggle and the child and the teachers. I think that's a great, great point. Um, you know, we're, we're right up against commercial break. Okay. But when we come back, I actually want to, to learn a little bit more and have you share a little bit more about, um, about narrative play therapy and, 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 and okay. what it is and what the philosophies are. So okay. we'll talk just, about that right after yeah. this. Just so you know, my undergraduate school was UCLA, so I'm way behind that study. That's great. Awesome. We'll, be, we'll, okay. we'll talk about that when we come back from this break. Okay, bye. Autism Spectrum Therapies is proud to present Autism Spectrum Radio. At AST, we see a world where people with autism dream and achieve their full potential. Our promise is to support families through our extensive resources, highly trained staff, and outstanding programs. At AST, we recognize that every child is unique. We are proud to offer what we believe is the most cohesive approach to supporting your child's needs and goals at each stage. From ABA to speech therapy, occupational therapy, and social skills, we have the elements you need to build the plan that is just right for you. One company, one team, with one mission, to support individuals and their families to dream and achieve their full potential. Call us today to let us know how we can best support your family at 866-727-8274. To find out more about AST, visit our website at www.autismtherapies.com. is Autism Spectrum Radio. If you have a question or comment for our host, Rob, or the guest, please send an email to moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. That's moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Now, back to the program. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Autism Spectrum Radio. I'm your host, Rob Haupt, and I'm joined today by Ann Densmore. Um, You know, Ann, we were talking a little bit about narrative play um, and it's something I'm actually not that familiar with. So I was actually okay. hoping you could, you could kind of give us a little bit about maybe how you got into it and what the, the philosophies and the, and the background on what the approach is. 
I think the the basic concept of the whole idea of using play is to integrate play and language and storytelling. Mm-hmm. And those three kind of domains, we might call them, <clears throat> allow a child to sit on the floor with toys or with small objects and talk with each other as they play. Or <clears throat> the child may be outside on the playground running across the, a sandbox or something or climbing a little rock, and they're talking to each other and they're using pretend play. And by incorporating <clears throat> language production and storytelling or narrative into the context of play, a child, particularly a child with autism, gets interested in it and follows the sequence and learns how to sequence their thinking and mm-hmm. connect to a peer. And that's the outcome. We want mm-hmm. children to at least connect to one peer. If they just have one friend in school, it helps them socially. And oh, yeah. later, by second and third grade, they do better. They have mm-hmm. a higher vocabulary, according to the mm-hmm. research. So it's really important to try to get them connected. So narrative play is a way of teaching a parent or a teacher and a child to play, to notice peers, and to, st- to tell narratives as they go. Mm-hmm. It's got so, four phases. I don't know if you want me to explain those. Uh, sure. Why don't you give us kind of like a, a summary of, of each phase? Okay. So the first thing you do is called first contact. And this is very similar to floor time, which was established by Dr. Greenspan. But it's a way of trying to imitate and experience where your child is. And, you know, it's really hard. I've had many parents say to me, I can't go around the room saying, deep, deep, that. But, you know, whatever your child's saying, you mimic the sounds. Imitate, imitate, and narrate what you're doing. And mm-hmm. narrate what the child is doing. I took a little two-year-old to a pond, Walden Pond, mm-hmm. and I couldn't, you know, he wasn't saying a thing. He was throwing trucks and pulling tantrums and having a tough time. So I took his mom and his dad and him down to the pond. And he watched this leaf flying around in the wind, and he started making noises. So I started imitating the same exact intonation pitch, the same patterns that he was making. And it's really hard to be vulnerable as a parent and an adult and mm-hmm. start playing where the child is. And that's mm-hmm. really hard to follow their lead because what you want to do instead is ask him a bunch of questions like, what's this? It's a leaf. What's that? That's a pond. Mm-hmm. And this makes the child often shut down because they feel sort of tested. If you can just join them and have fun, you have to move close to them. You have to use <clears throat> affect and have a good time yourself. And sure. that's basically the, part, the first contact phase. Is, is that similar to, like, I, when you describe this to me, I'm thinking of, so I have uh, two young, uh, a young niece, a, a infant niece and a, and a toddler nephew, and I'm thinking of how I played with him when he was like eight months, nine months old. We would right. sit in restaurants, and we, him and I would like goof off and make faces at each other. Exactly. And I would totally be like nonsensical, you know, gibberish. It was, it was, it was baby talk. <laughs> and so is this because, from, from the philosophy of this, of this approach, is it because play is at that infant stage and we need to get to that exactly. foundation and then move exactly. up? Exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> you have to start at that beginning stage or it's hard mm-hmm. to go on to the next stage, which is with peers and joint attention. Mm-hmm. You have to try to get a child to have what we call sort of a circle of communication where they're responding back to you, where there's a mm-hmm. back and forth exchange of sounds and gesture. And mm-hmm. you know how it's so much fun when you see a, 
a child respond to another child, and they go, ooh, ooh, and the other one goes, ooh, ooh, in the same way. Right. They are communicating, and that's what you're after in first contact mm-hmm. phase. Okay. <clears throat> and then once you get there, you want to think about the second phase, which is very important, and the research supports this. It's called joint attention, which yep. means it's the idea of getting your child to share not only a toy with you, but an event or an experience. So you, you want to help a child, particularly a child with autism. They get very stuck on, and repetitive on certain patterns, and they want to take a train and move it on a track back and forth the same way every single time. So you have to help them join the child and help them visualize new patterns of play. Mm-hmm. You, t- you know, you move your – you don't take their object away that they're stuck on. You use your own object, which is similar. So if you're playing with a train or with Winnie the Pooh or with a stick – out mm-hmm. of, in a pond, you move that stick just like they're moving theirs, but you say, hey, let's move it over here. Let's make another kind of a track. Let's make an airport. How about a plane? And you help the child get excited about and see how their object can be diverted into other kinds of play actions, and they share mm-hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. And that joint attention skill is what we call sort of a precursor to socialization. If you can get your child to that phase, that is gold. Yeah. It's the, best, it's the very best thing. I know there's a lot of research. You know, it's funny you talk about joint attention because I, I think every single person who's been on the show who has a therapy that they're talking about, uh, <laughs> ABA people like me, uh, right. speech and language pathologists, this is, this is the key. You know, everyone's talking about joint attention. Yeah, Everyone is saying this is the key area we've got to start with. It's true. I mean, Rebecca Landa did research at Johns Hopkins, and she's the Mm -hmm. one that said that it is a precursor to socialization. And I think it's so important. It sounds like a funny word, like you just bring a child to another child and they share a toy. But it's much more than that. It's when they they see the other child's actions. They may even make a comment about them or make a gesture toward them, but they go Mm -hmm. back and forth and actually join them in some kind of play. And mm-hmm. at a young age, it's parallel play. At an older age, it may be a little bit more integrated, more involved. Mm-hmm. But you, ha- you have to work on this phase quite a while so that the child can see the other child, and it leads to this whole thing we call perspective taking. Mm-hmm. Seeing another person, thinking about what they're feeling, and thinking about what they're thinking, mm-hmm. which is, of course, another big skill. Yeah. And very, and very important for children with autism. Mm-hmm. Or Asperger's. Yeah. So then we go on. <laughs> the, ne- the third phase is called reciprocity, and that's when you bring in the peer and you, or a sibling. I do a lot of sibling work with the kids, and it's, it's so much fun to get them to connect. And when you bring a peer in, what you're doing is you really start out by talking with the peer or the sibling, not the child that's struggling with communication, but the other one. And in the research now, we've found that peer prompting and peer communication is quite powerful, even more powerful at times than an adult prompt. This, of course, depends on the child. Some children have to have adult scaffolding and adult mm-hmm. prompting. But if you can get the two kids, I usually work in dyads with two kids on a playground. If you can get them to really connect to each other and start to engage in reciprocal conversation back and forth. Like maybe they narrate what the child's doing. Maybe they're running across a, a field with a soccer ball. 
And they, if you can get them to look at each other and say, hey, watch me, hey, come over here. And you can add gestures, you can get them to notice each other's facial expressions. And if, something, if you have an opportunity and one of the kids shows some particular emotion or feelings that are obvious, maybe one of them trips, you can work really hard on helping the child see and hear how the peer feels and what's going on. So this is really beyond joint attention. It's that reciprocal interaction with a peer. Mm-hmm. And then the final phase is what I call social engagement, and that's when, you know, children can be really socially engaged at a very early age. And that's when a child really sees the perspective of another child. He wants to negotiate with them. He wants to construct stories in play with them. And, and he recognizes that the child that he's playing with may not think the same way he thinks. And then the child that's socially engaged is pretty happy, uh, pretty self-confident, and can play with more than one child. Usually can play with two or three pretty easily. And they, what they do is they construct a narrative or a story, and they, they negotiate over the story. They may even argue over it, but they're together, and they're side by side. They stay with each other in space, um, some of the kids with autism have a lot of sensory issues, you know, that of course. they get worried about being too close or in someone else's space, and you have to really recognize that and help them with all those issues. But social engagement is quite a clear phase, and it's so much fun. It's so much fun to see children go all the way from first contact to social engagement. So I, my question for you is when we think about this first contact, it, it sounds like there's not like a language prerequisite that needs to be hit to start with first contact. Like I don't need to have a minimum amount of language to start with a first contact. No, I mean I have parents who bring me children at 16, 17, 18 months, and they're just, pulling, they're just having tantrums. They're not right. talking at all. And sometimes it's just sound play. So you don't have to have a child that's talking to begin. I see many young children, um, they, they come from everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Switzerland, Hong Kong, everywhere. And it's this whole first step of helping the parent and the child's teacher or nanny or babysitter or a sibling relate to that child in a way that's where that child is. In other words, if the child really wants to move the wheels on a truck, you can move the wheels on a truck with him, and he's making sounds with it. You can make those sounds. And then all of a sudden the child might look up at you for one second. That's contact. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's progress. So Mm -hmm. you have to look at these small, tiny steps in that first phase. And at first, when you first try it and the child does not respond, you think to yourself, oh, this is this is impossible. <laughs> if you keep going, and you, my whole philosophy is you don't give up, you follow the child's lead and also the child's interest. Some kids are better playing inside or in a playroom or in a school. Mm-hmm. Some kids you need to take outside. I've taken kids out on tube sleds in the snow in Boston. Mm, yeah. or, you know, I, I, I have really worked at trying to find out what they love to do. Some kids love Legos, some kids don't. And you work at finding those interests and following them. You know, I had one little boy who loved to fly kites. That's all he wanted to do. So I had these little tiny miniature $5 kites, and I got a bunch of them together, and he was in phase three 
able to play with one peer, but when he was around more than one, he was panicked. He just fell apart. He couldn't, he couldn't use language at all, and it, partly his sensory needs. So we went outside my office in Lexington, found a playground, and I gave each of them a kite, and they started running with these little small kites, and they never, they never sink. They're amazing. And they started running together in patterns. You know, all of a sudden, there were five kids flying these little kites. You know, I'm not saying that that's always going to happen. Sure. You have to really be very creative as a therapist and a parent. (laughs) And you can't give up. You have to keep trying. And the kids are the first to tell you when something doesn't work. You know, my older kids will say, Ann, this is really boring. I don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do something new. Let's, Let's make a plane. So I follow the kids' lead all the time. Sure. Well, we got another commercial break, um, but I want to talk a little bit more about um, the, the reciprocity stage because I'm curious okay. about the, some of those steps um, because I know there's, from what I'm hearing, so much that a lot of different parents, regardless of what approach, I think could probably learn from how um, this peer is brought into the therapy. So let's talk more about that when we come back from this break. Okay. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. Autism Spectrum Therapies is proud to present Autism Spectrum Radio. At AST, we see a world where people with autism dream and achieve their full potential. Our promise is to support families through our extensive resources, highly trained staff, and outstanding programs. Call us today and let us know how we can best support your family at 866-278-1520. To find out more about AST, visit our website at www.autismtherapies.com. Connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Autism Spectrum Therapies, supporting extraordinary individuals and their families. Visit AutismTherapies.com or call 866-278-1520. This is Autism Spectrum Radio. If you have a question or comment for our host, Rob, or the guest, please send an email to moreinfo at AutismTherapies.com. That's more info at AutismTherapies.com. Now, back to the program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, I'm Rob Haupt, your host, and I'm talking to Ann Densmore today. Um, you know, and I know I said right before the break I want to talk about uh, the reciprocity stage, and, and we'll get there in a second, but I've actually been thinking about um, something else you said right before the break, Ann, that I uh-huh. feel like people kind of lose sight of. It's this idea of creativity. And, uh-huh. like, regardless of approach, like, I, I feel like so many times I hear parents tell me, well, no, like, that's, they'll say they've been working with whatever service provider, and it's like, no, that's just the way they do things. Or they, they question, like, can therapy be fun? And I'm like, of course therapy can be fun. <laughs> and, and so I want to really kind of emphasize, like, how important I think what you said was, is, like, if the kid is bored, how great is that? First, how amazing is it that your kids are telling you they're bored? That's awesome. <laughs> um, in the grand scheme of things, that's pretty amazing. And secondly, like how important it is to make sure our therapy is not boring. Well, it's so important. Uh, I think, first of all, I should mention that I always have the parents 
or the specialists that work with the child outside, they are always invited into the session anytime. And I cool. always have parents with me so they can learn with me. And they're never um, asked to leave the session. And after a while, they, you know, they want to leave and get a cup of coffee. But right. basically, <laughs> they're with me. And, I, and sometimes they'll come up with these creative ideas and realize they know their child, too. Yeah. yeah, children do tell me the truth, and that's the best part about getting a reciprocal, trusting relationship with them, especially with a therapist. It's amazing how they'll tell me what I'm doing is what they love. They'll, they'll say, hey, this is cool, or this is awesome, or I love yeah. it. I mean, I had a little boy making some paper airplanes, which is a simple thing, right? Yeah. And we were trying to figure out how to put this paper clip on the airplane so it would fly, and, of course, it hit the ground every time it didn't fly. And this little guy looked at me, age five, and said, you know, this is not working, and this is really boring. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, he said, how about wood? So I said, okay. So we found wood, and we got some wood glue, and we proceeded to make this airplane out of wood. Awesome. Well, it didn't fly much better, but he loved the project because he suggested it. And he was talking to me constantly about the creation of this plane. And right. it had plastic bottles on it, and it had tape, and we had paper clips, and then we hooked up a line in the office, and we made this zip line. And if you put water in the plastic bottles and you tape them to the bottom of the wood and put a big, uh, you know, you put wings across the plane with some cardboard, the plane can zip on the zip line and fly across the room. Well, he was ecstatic. Oh, that's and awesome. Funniest looking airplane you've ever seen in your life, and I never would have created it had this little boy not said to me, you know, wow. this paper airplane is really boring. Yeah. And so we had to make about 10 of these bottled airplanes. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, you parents often say to me, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And so I try to help them search, you know, in their relationship with their child about what they like to do with their child. Mm-hmm. You know, if they like to take That's a fun. hike. They take a hike, and then they can narrate and talk about what's going on in the environment, and that obviously mm. helps language. That's really cool. That's a very cool thing. You know, I, I, I'm hearing you, and I'm thinking of, of uh, this, this young man in our, in our social skills class that we, we teach down in Orange County, in our Orange County office, and mm-hmm. I happened to be there and, uh, you know, had a similar experience of um, – I. I am admitting my guilty pleasure. I have a, a professional wrestling guilty pleasure. The WWF and the WWE stuff, like, since I was six years old, seven years old, that's been, like, my guilty pleasure. And this 13-year-old boy, apparently, this is one of the things he likes. His eye contact, his, his everything came alive because we just started talking about, oh, did you see the match last night? Oh, it was great. Did you see last week? Right. And, and we had right. this great back and forth. Because he was so engaged because we shared this interest. Right. And I'm wondering, you know, as, as we look at this reciprocity stage, mm-hmm. i got to assume selection of the peer is critical. And so yes. do you take these things into account, like the idea of me and this 13-year-old, yes, I have the interest of a 13-year-old at times, shared this interest of professional wrestling, just... Do you do the same thing when you're pairing um, and moving into this phase? Definitely. I mean, definitely. I had two little boys in a social diet, two kids together, and I knew that they both liked to ski. So, of course, we went outside and we went 
we did a little skiing and a little sledding. And whatever it is the child likes, it's so important for the two peers to have some kind of interest. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you get peers who have interests that are repetitive and they get stuck on them. Like yeah. they get stuck on Legos and they can't stop building Legos. And if anybody takes a piece of their Lego away, they have a fit. So you have to be careful about what you select. It has to be something that's engaging for both of them, but some, not necessarily something that's going to end up being repetitive. And that was going to be my question for you is how, what do you do? Like I'm thinking <laughs> of the kid, like let's use the Legos. It's uh-huh. great. I, I have this great activity. I've got two kids who are really engaged in Legos. My peer loves Legos. My child <laughs> loves Legos. I know. How do I get out of Legos and into the next thing? It's it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard. I'm I don't honestly have an exact rule or an exact strategy, but I can tell you with every child, somehow I always figure out some creative way to child's attention or to get yeah. them to transition to something new. But mm-hmm. when I do have a play group, I do have some rules and some structure. There's an overriding yeah. structure. First, we come in and we, we have some kind of little crackers and juice or something, and they sit uh-huh. on big therapy balls, and we talk about the weekend. So we have right. a conversation. Then uh-huh. we get to decide what we're going to do together. And they know they can choose Legos, but they also know they have to choose two other things together, mm-hmm. two events, two little social things. That they do together that are not Legos. And so they get used to that routine. And they usually don't resist. And sometimes I have to make a visual. Me, Mm -hmm. a play therapist, I make a visual. And I use photography a lot. I I love photography. It's my hobby. So I take pictures of the kids doing particular activities, and I make these little books on pages on my laptop and send them, email them to the parents, and then they print them out, and they can talk about them. Uh So it encourages language. But it also gives me a way to sequence them in the social skills event. Mm. Or say, for example, I may take two or three boys apple picking in the fall. So we, I take my camera, we take pictures or my iPhone as we go. And then when we get back, we have our conversation with a snack and then we have an activity with Legos and then we may do something about talking about the sequence of events at the apple field trip. So it's, it does have some of the most of the sessions have some structure, especially when kids get stuck. Mm. You just have to give them limits. Visuals help them. Photography helps them a lot. The older kids do better with, I think, regular photography. And if the child is in the picture, it's amazing how it helps. Mm. It's amazing. That's great. Does that help? No, that that helps tremendously. It's 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 nice to know that you know it's 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 always about finding that fine line is is kind of what fits for this this kiddo, and so it's nice to kind of hear the other things you're doing to mm-hmm. to find that line. Um, well, I mean, it's tricky, and then in, in between all this, you know, social skill play therapy work, I'm always cognizant of the language work. Like, for example. Mm-hmm. I may have a social skills group of three kids, and they just are all yelling at each other, and they're just one inch apart from each other's face. In other words, they don't get speaker-listener distance. They don't get how loud their voice is in relation to how far away they are from the the peer. Uh So we do this with role modeling, and I do it with they make, um, you know, 
strings on the ground and they practice and oh, they cool. laugh, you know, and then they yell at each other when they're a foot away and then they back up and they practice. How loud should their voice be? And, you know, they can't be on a soccer field and then be next to their peer and yell at them. So we work. That may be a language skill for the social group for the day. Every day they have a goal mm-hmm. for a language skill. And the parent knows what the goal is. And then they see me once a week in this group, and then the parent has to practice. And what's really cute are the parents practice these goals, and they say, gee, I need to learn that. Yeah. (laughs) I need to see the perspective of my friends. I need to be practicing how loud I am in the room. (laughs) But it's a a whole family thing. And then, of course, I give the goals to the teachers. It's funny you talk about the whole family thing. I'm, I'm thinking my wife probably says I need that goal at home. She's a, she's a quiet person, and I'm that loud northeast person, you know, growing up in New York and spending so much time in New England. We, uh, we tend to be a little bit louder than, uh, than she's used to being uh, born and raised here. Um, you know, one of the thoughts I had hearing your group, which, which sounds really cool to me, and I, I love – I, you know, I love the photography thing because I actually just really love photography and I think it's so cool. Yeah. But um, because it's structured and you have more control, I know, are there differences or are there things you have to accommodate differently when you're trying to do this type of approach with a teacher maybe on the playground where there's maybe less boundaries and less structure to it? Well, there's two ways I'll work on the playground. Sometimes I get... Um, I, I get permission from a, a typical, what I hate to say typical, a peer without challenges right. in the classroom. I get permission from the teacher and the parent to take that child out of the classroom at a time when they're not missing anything. It could mm. be something, I don't know, like, I don't know what kind of time, but the teacher would give me permission uh-huh. and take them out for like 15 or 20 minutes with the child with the challenges, with the autism. Without the everyone around. Right, with no one there. And I have a lot of videotapes of this. I, I actually take the, the two kids together, and we narr- cool. I narrate what the peer's doing, the child mm-hmm. without the challenges. Mm-hmm. And then the child with autism hears this. And we may get on a little balance beam on the playground, and I'll say, wow, what are you doing? First you step up, then you walk across, then you're careful, then you step off the end. Okay, it's a sequence mm-hmm. of language and a sequence of actions. And mm-hmm. it also helps the child with this thing called motor planning, which these kids have trouble with, you know, sequencing sure. their ideas and sequencing their motor activities. So if I can get them on the playground with no one there, it's great. And then I give the parents homework and say, go to a park when it's quiet and there's no one there. Find a quiet space and practice with a neighborhood friend or with a sibling and see if you can't get him to follow a peer. On the playground itself, the goals are slightly different than in the classroom. On the playground, the goals might be to stay within the same distance and track your peer and follow him and make one or two comments while you're running. And believe it or not, that's a hard thing to do sometimes for children with autism. Like they'll play tag and they'll get stuck in tag and not say anything. They'll just chase all the kids in the class and run around in circles. (laughs) And they're not connecting. That. Yeah. So that may be the goal. So that's how I work on the playground. And I do bring my camera out there sometimes and nice. take pictures if, if I'm not doing the therapy piece. And then I print them out later and talk to them about what they did. We always go back and talk about what we're doing and our goals. Mm-hmm. 
And the teachers are always watching, and sometimes they'll model the same thing. The other thing I do on the playground is sometimes I ask a teacher to find a buddy for the week for a child that has autism that will accompany him on the playground, and I give them a visual with some choices before they go outside. Like the goal will be that you have to play with this peer in, with two activities, like go on the structure and swing on the swing. And I have asked them to do this the first 10 minutes of recess, and the last 10 minutes they can do anything they want. They can pace and do nothing. <laughs> so there's always a, a strategy. You know, I don't just send them out there on their own. Nice. Well, we've got one final commercial break that we're going to take, and then we'll come okay. back for one last segment with Ann. We'll be right back. Autism Spectrum Therapies is proud to present Autism Spectrum Radio. At AST, we see a world where people with autism dream and achieve their full potential. Our promise is to support families through our extensive resources, highly trained staff, and outstanding programs. Call us today and let us know how we can best support your family at 866-278-1520. To find out more about AST, visit our website at www.autismtherapies.com. Connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Autism Spectrum Therapies, supporting extraordinary individuals and their families. Visit AutismTherapies.com or call 866-278-1520. This is Autism Spectrum Radio. If you have a question or comment for our host, Rob, or the guest, please send an email to moreinfo at AutismTherapies.com. That's more info at AutismTherapies.com. Now, back to the program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Final segment here on Autism Spectrum Radio. I'm your host, Rob Haupt, and I'm joined by Ann Densmore today. Um, you know, Ann, I was, as I was listening to you uh, talk about how you're, how you're setting things up on the playground and, and the plans that you kind of come up with, uh-huh. you know, I, I just I couldn't help but just have this feeling of, God, there's so much that I'm like, I do that, I do that, I get that. I, I like how much this really overlaps. And I know we've been talking during the commercials a little bit about this, and I, and I felt like we had to share this on the air too. It's you yeah. know probably although we come from two different backgrounds and two different approaches, and you know I don't have a speech and language background. I'm I'm an ABA guy. Uh-huh. How much of this overlaps? I mean, probably 75, 80% of what, what you do and I do and believe in is the same exact thing. And that right. difference is probably those subtle things about what strategy is going to fit this kid or that family or that teacher, as you've, as you've really stated very clearly and well. Um, well, I think, Rob, we're both after the same goal, which is a yeah. trusting relationship with the child. Mm-hmm. And once they get that and they get it with a peer, you know, it's gold. They can, they can move forward. Yeah. And that's what we're both trying to do. And, yeah. you know, some children need more structure and more visuals than others. Some just, you just need to follow their interests and keep relating and teaching and connecting with them, you know, which is what we both do. Yeah, and and one of the things I've really liked, though, about what you said 
and you said this at the top of the show, and, and you kind of said it now, I like that you don't, as much as you have small goals that you're striving for, mm-hmm. um, and you're very cognizant of these uh, baby steps, especially right. in that first phase, um, joint attention being a critical goal, I really right. like that you have long-term goals. Like the way you talked at the top of the show about just how important that one friend is. And yeah. I sometimes feel services, and, you know, ABA is definitely guilty of this at times. Mm-hmm. We get so focused on this little goal or this small step that we lose sight of there's this bigger picture goal that we can never take our eyes off of. And I really like that your therapy and your approach, and you personally really seem to keep a balance of the yeah. small and the long. It's so true. I have one little boy, and I'll I'll make this a quick story. He was two years old. He wouldn't say anything, and then he finally was playing a piano, a little plastic piano, and I took it away from him, and he said, want piano. Wow. His mother almost cried, so we have this tape. Oh, my God. He's now in high school. I know not all kids are going to go this far, and he's the Uh lead singer in his high school play. He has friends. I went to see him in the play. I sat in the audience. And I just cried. I mean, he went all the way from not being social and not talking to being just a typical kid. I mean, it is possible. It, isn't, it doesn't always happen like that. Sure. Um, but you have to always have that big overall goal. That in some way, your child will have a friend at some level. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that's... I don't know. Over the years, I think there was one point in my when I was younger and I was starting out in this that mm-hmm. felt like, wow, that's such a big goal. I'm so new with this, or I, I, <laughs> my experiences were limited. That felt bigger and more unattainable. Mm-hmm. And as I've as the years have gone by, I, I really think I, I think I agree with you. It's that that may be one of the most important goals I could work on. Is how how important is one really good friend in your mm-hmm. quality of life? Like in mine and yours and everybody's. <clears throat> right. It's so it's so important. And just to see children relate, it's just it's like finding water yeah. in a desert. It's just such an experience and it's why I do this work. This to see their face light up. <clears throat> to see how they connect. It's really great. Well, I really, really want to thank you for being on the show today. Um we we've only got a couple minutes left and I and I must thank you on a personal level. All of your stories have made me so homesick, uh, sledding in, in Boston. Uh, I actually lived down the street from Clark University for two years. So, like, it's stomping grounds. I even, I think I probably spent five or six summer trips to Lexington going to the old, like, the site of that, uh, of the big battle that started the American Revolution. So you are, like, everything about you and your stories, it's, it's just, it's made me a little homesick but in a good way because I'm going to be back in Boston uh, this August. So uh, I want to thank oh, you for yeah, that as that's well. great. That's wonderful. Well, thank Very you cool. so much. And thank you for teaching me about narrative uh, play therapy because, like I said, I, I feel like I've learned a lot today too. And so have I. Very cool. Um, we got a couple minutes left, everybody, and I, uh, I first I kind of feel, feel kind of bummed. I, I told everyone, I was like, you know, I wanted I wanted to read one last contest winner before before the show was up or, or before um, you know before it ended. And uh, you know, I found out last week was officially the last week. So I want to thank everyone who um, 
who shared their stories. Um, I know we, we picked some amazing winners, but uh, there was a lot of amazing stories out there, and I just want to thank everyone for, for telling their story uh, because, I, as I've said many times, I think our stories, your stories, are really going to be um, what changes things, what makes things better. Uh, I, I continue to believe that the system changes um, as parents and professionals really lead the charge to make the needs of our children known and to advocate for them. Um, I know we're going to do some other really cool events in the, in the coming months, um, so please uh, keep tuning in because I will announce them here, but we'll also announce them on Facebook. Um, we, uh, if you really were into today's show, it really into and want to learn more about social skills, um, there's a couple of other shows you could tune into. One in particular is one that we hosted um, back in March. It was on March 26th, uh, actually, coincidentally enough. Uh, Dr. Gina Chang, who uh, stepped in for me last week, was my guest, and we were talking about social skills. And I think, as Ann and I have talked about, there's a lot of overlapping themes that I think are going to be really helpful and really cool to see now that we've got these two conversations and you can look at them side by side, you can then put them together. So uh, you can go to uh, autismtherapies.com and be able to go to the radio page and uh, listen to our archive there and listen to Dr. Chang's show as well as any other shows um, that we have there. I know so many of you have been going and checking out those archives, which is awesome. That's why why we post them there. That's why I want to make sure you guys are able to have access to all of this because uh, I know me, I even went back and listened to a show to say, I got to get that one idea. I got to remember that because I want to use that with a parent. And, and I was able to. Um, very excited. Uh, very cool show coming up next week. Actually going to have two guests, our first ever show with two different guests, each with very cool perspectives. Uh, the first uh, is actually an advocate who has a great perspective about helping families. And the second guest who's going to join us is uh, a surprise guest, a a good friend of mine, uh, a young man on the spectrum who uh, is going to take some time out of his day to talk a little bit about his experiences and a little bit about his journey. And I am really excited to have him on the show because he's been a a good friend of mine for quite some time. Um, I see that I have 30 seconds left. So with my final 30 seconds, I want to thank you guys for tuning in. As always, if you've got questions, please email us, moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. We can talk about funding questions, clinical questions, you name it. Also, as you guys have been, Facebook is a great place to get more resources and information. Um, I respond to a lot of the posts out there as well um, as one of my colleagues I'm making sure that we're getting their information and the resources to you guys. Um, and as I said, tune into the archives and, and get more of these resources that we've been providing because I know uh, there's been a lot of cool stuff we've been talking about. Have a fabulous week. Have a fabulous weekend. And I'll talk to you all next week. Take care, everybody. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of Autism Spectrum Radio. For additional information and resources about autism, visit www.autismtherapies.com. Please join us each week for a new episode or visit our archive to listen to and download previous shows.